0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org.
1: All right, brothers, Session 5. Let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Dear Heavenly Father, we don't count it a light thing that you have let us move through this book, and we are now at the last session I pray that you would now meet us. We want to understand how this grand summons out of darkness into light through seeking you and through waiting on you becomes a summons to satisfaction. May you be praised even as we unpack your word. May our joy increase even as we desire all that you have set before us. May that desire create present delight. And may we celebrate a God who rejoices over his own. A God who sings over his redeemed. What an amazing, amazing truth. Help us encounter you today. We need to meet you. So open our ears. Grant us all we need for the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen a text that I failed to read. I'm going to go back and reread verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3 of Zephaniah. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, scattered ones, shall bring my offering. Now I argued um, that... I think most likely because Cush is mentioned, we're not just talking about those Judeans who were scattered in the Babylonian exile and God's anticipating that exile coming and He's going to scatter them out of Jerusalem. It's not just that group, but it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel to those who, using the exact same word, were scattered around the globe stemming from the Tower of Babel. So that means not just the one family of Abraham, but All of the other uh, 69 families, 70 families springing out, becoming 70 major people groups from the Tower of Babel. They were scattered. Now hear the words of Caiaphas during Jesus' final um, judgment. Here's what he said. High priest Caiaphas he prophesies this, Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but, for, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That is John eleven fifty one 51 and 52. I think that's what we're talking about. I think, I think that is exactly what Zephaniah is referring to. And... It becomes one of the key reasons why we wait. Why do we wait on God in, in patient pursuit and tireless trust? Because the realization of that is worth waiting for. And then I argued that we've already seen the initiation of that realized in the person of Jesus and in the growth of the church. We're part of a people whose speech has been purified so that we can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But we're longing for the day when it will be absolutely complete. Now what happens in verses 11 through 20 is as I, as I see it, I think what we have is um, another step back and clarification specifically for the audience of this book, the, um, the Judean remnant, those who have ears to hear, those who will seek the Lord, those who will wait upon the Lord from Judah, from Jerusalem, not being part of the remnant of Baal, but being the true part of the remnant of the faithful, what are the implications of this particular promise for them? Now notice verse 11 begins with on that day and verse 16 begins with on that day. That creates two units here at the very end of the book. Two units and they surround verses 14 and 15 which is like an intrusion. And we'll see how it's an intrusion. It's, this, it's almost like Zephaniah is so uh, filled up with awe about the glory of the future, he bursts into this call, sing for joy. Sing for joy. And verses 14 and 15, are it's like a a joy sandwich. Okay? So there's, there's the blessing from 11 to 12 on this side. There's the blessing from 16 to 20 on this side. And right in the middle is this call to joy. And all of it is unpacking the specific implications for the remnant of Judah. Remember, this is a sermon to a specific people group in Zephaniah's day. Some of whom will actually have ears to hear. So on that day, what day are we talking about? Verse 9 said, at that time. So that pushes us further up ahead. I think the day we're looking at is found up in verse 8. Therefore wait for me for the day when I testify. The day when... It's the day of the Lord when He shows up as um, a judge to decide the sheep and the goats. When He separates, on that day, here are the implications for you if you have persevered with Me. And this is hopeful. So, we begin in verse 11. The future removal of Jerusalem's shame. On that day you shall not be put to shame. Now, the you here is feminine, singular. And I think it anticipates, verse 14, where, we're look, where the mention is of the daughter of Zion. There's Jerusalem that we learned back in chapter 3, verse 1, is an oppressing city. But then there's the daughter of Jerusalem, which I think is the remnant. They've somehow come forth from the evil and now they're actually following God. That's who this is referring to. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds with which you rebelled against me. The remnant are not a perfect people. They're a forgiven people. They're a people who have encountered God and found atonement. It's not that they don't have shame, it's that God won't put them to shame. And there's a big difference. Somehow, they're worthy, they have rebelled, but they won't be put to shame. Because another has stood in their place and bore their shame. You won't be put to shame because of the deeds with which you rebelled against me. Because at that time... I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty. Now, this is the same word that was used of Nineveh at the end of chapter 2. They were the exultant or proud, self righteous city. And that's exactly what Jerusalem has been. But now you have, according to chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who keep the commandments. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. You've got that group that have somehow moved from rebel to remnant. They have hearts that have been changed. They're hungry and humble before the Lord. And then you've got those that remain proud and arrogant who refuse to listen. God always opposes the proud. And though His wrath may seem distant, because his patience is so great, the day of judgment comes and it falls on the proud. What it says here is that there's hope for the remnant. The proud are going to be removed. We're not going to have them pushing on us anymore. The oppression will cease. And so here's where we have to say some of what Zephaniah is talking about is realized already. We're calling on the name of the Lord. But at another level, there's still a lot of hostility and some of it happens to be sitting in our pews. God's sheep that we're called to be under shepherds of these sheep, God's sheep can bite. And that makes it difficult. At least... And then you've got those that claim to be sheep that are really mean goats. And then you've got those that are just proud to be goats. It says here, the proud and exultant will be removed. Notice where it's going to happen. You shall no longer be haughty in My holy mountain. That's the image of paradise. The Garden of Eden was up on a mountain. That's why all four rivers could flow from it down and feed the entire world. At the end of the Exodus 15, right after Israel goes through, goes through the water, this is what we read about the promised land where they're headed. Exodus 15, 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed, O God. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then I jump down to verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Sovereign One, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. God's Back there, taking them somewhere. And the promised land is a picture of that holy mountain. Then we get texts like Isaiah chapter 2, which says, in that day, Zion, that is Jerusalem, will be established as the highest of all the mountains. Remember that text? So here's what we read. It shall come to pass in the latter days... That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And who's going to stream to it? All the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways. Now mountain texts show up all throughout the prophets. It's a picture of the ultimate end. And there we find God reigning over all at His mountain, teaching, instructing. But what's intriguing to me is that although Isaiah pinpoints God as the teacher in Isaiah chapter 2, in Isaiah 51, what we read is, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Who's talking? The servant. The Messiah. He's the ultimate instrument through whom the law comes. He's at the mountain. He's the one who's reigning on God's behalf at the mountain. So here we see there's a remnant of Judah camped out at the mountain, at the holy mountain, and there's no other hostility around them. But in verse 10 we say, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of the dispersed ones, from all the rest of the 69 families of the world, they're bringing offerings. To where? To Jerusalem where God reigns. So, as I'm reading this, I'm I'm seeing, I I think, uh, Zephaniah is talking to the daughter of Zion. He's viewing this as a Judah remnant-focused text. But who's right around them? Who's been put into the midst of them? It's the nations from verses 9 and 10. And so it's difficult for me to know whether I'm supposed to separate all that we're reading right now about the restoration of Judah that I'm supposed to separate it from what we've already read about in verses 9 and 10. Because where are the nations that have gathered? They've gathered to worship God in Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem now where all the enemies have been pushed out. Verse 12, Not only will I remove from their midst the proud and exultant, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, most likely, many of those who were being oppressed by the leaders are no longer going to be oppressed. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. This image of refuge is all over. It's the same image that we have of in Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, where "I will establish my king in Zion. That's in Jerusalem. nations. You're in an uproar against God, but God is laughing at you because ultimately you hold no power, and the only hope you have is if you kiss the sun. That is find refuge in him. It's those who find refuge in the name of Yahweh who will be saved. Then notice it's they shall seek refuge in the name of Yahweh those who are left in Israel. This is the first time the word Israel has shown up in the book. We've heard Judah. We've heard Jerusalem. But now that it's called Israel, that's what, if you remember, when the kingdom was divided into two parts, it was the northern kingdom that the Assyrians already destroyed in 723. They were called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. But very much like Jeremiah 31, when it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that they broke um, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even though I was their husband. But this will be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. You've got two nations. In the first statement, I'll make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. And then the second time he says it, I will make a new covenant with Israel. A unified people, no longer divided, no longer broken. A unified people of God. And that's what I'm seeing here as well. Those who are left in Israel. All that are left are the pure of heart. Those who've drawn near to God. Those who sought humility and righteousness. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Left after judgment. Well, what is their characteristics? They shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Well, that's what at the beginning of chapter 3 we learned was rampant in Israel. But now they've got purified speech. There shall not be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. It's intriguing that lack of deceit is one of the key features noted of the Messiah. In Isaiah... Isaiah 53, no deceit was found in his lips. He's not a liar, and now there's a people who've been identified with his same type of character qualities. No deceit. And why this was intriguing as I pondered it even this morning. I hadn't considered what the four at the end of verse 13 was all about. No injustice, speak no lies, no deceit on their tongue, because they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Because there's no fear, there will be no deceit. Because there's no fear, there will be no injustice. What, at least the logic of Zephaniah, if I'm tracking it, what it suggests to me is that one of the key features that drives people to sin is some kind of a fear. A fear that I won't have the pleasure that I could have had. A fear that I'll miss this opportunity if I don't step out and do it now. A fear that judgment, a a fear that I won't have as much as everyone else, or that I might not have enough when such and such happens. So what do they do? They step out and they sin. A fear that someone might not think of me as highly as I want them to think. Therefore, I'll push them down. Fear. So, that's what I'm reading in the logic here. When it says, They will do no injustice, speak no lies, no deceit in their tongue, because there will be none to make them afraid. Remove the fear of death. Remove the fear of inability. Remove the fear of failure. Many who I've ministered to, they're struggling with pornography. They've just given up. It's like the giants in the land. I look at my past, and I've already failed so many times. They fear the pain of stepping out one more time only to fail again. They fear future failure. So they just give up and they just start living in failure. All that fear will be taken away. No more fear that enemies can oppose me or oppress me. No more fear that I'll fail. No more fear that God will be distant. At this, Zephaniah pauses. And in verse 14, it's like an intrusion. And he makes a command, but it's a different command than he made in 2 3 and 2 8 and 3 8. Up in 3 8, just look, it says, wait for me. Back in 2 verse 3, he said, Seek the Lord. Now both seek the Lord and wait are masculine in form. But when when he says, sing aloud in verse 14 of chapter 3, it's feminine. And I think that's one signal that this is not one of the main commands in the book. The main sermon is found in seek the Lord and wait for the Lord. And when he uses those, he's talking to the remnant of Judah. But now he's Talking, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. The masculines are for those who are hoping for restoration. And the daughter of Zion is a portrait of those who have already been saved. And the command in verse 14 is feminine. But so that we know it's the same group, shout is masculine, and then rejoice and exult is feminine again. Sing aloud, O daughter If you're going to command your daughter, you need to say it in the feminine in Hebrew. Masculine doesn't quite work. You'll miss her. She won't know you're talking to her. Now the daughter of Zion, as I already said, Zion is the oppressive city. That's Jerusalem that's been filled with rabble and the um, remnant of Baal. But out of this identity, this mother has come a daughter. And that daughter has been purified cleansed, saved, seeking the Lord, and she can rejoice. But notice how the rejoicing goes. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And then verse 15 tells us why. And this is why I think it's intrusive. It cuts right in. It's like he's just caught up and he has to do this, but he's talking about the future of what was not yet for His audience, but what is already for us. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. But when I look up in verse 11, and it says, "...I will remove from your midst your proud and exultant ones." And then I read back in chapter 3 that says that's where Zephaniah's audience is. The enemies are still there in Zephaniah's day. The removal of the enemies is something that's future. But now in verse 15, just like he did with Assyria when he said, your judgment, it's a, I, I'm so convinced that it's coming, I'm going to talk about it as if it's already done. Now he's talking to the remnant. Those who are seeking the Lord and waiting upon the Lord. And he says, brothers... Sisters, listen to me. Rejoice now because already your enemies are gone. It's that certain. And yet, he's talking to a people who are still living in the midst of a lot of pain. Zephaniah is the same age as Habakkuk. How long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to live in this city of Jerusalem filled with people who don't take your law seriously? Injustice is is rampant. Oppression is all around me. How long, God? And the Word is... Brothers, for those who seek the Lord, repenting, for those who wait upon the Lord, right now you can renew your strength. Because the future is already yours. You can rejoice today because it's as if your enemies are all gone. God is for you, not against you. This is how the summons to patient pursuit of God becomes a summons to satisfaction. And that somehow we can count it all joy today, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. That's the message that Zephaniah has. Count it joy now, because the future is already yours. It's already been secured for you. Sing aloud, O daughter. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, notice the parallelism. He has cleared away your enemies. The judgments, because of the parallelism, and the very next line talks about enemies, I think the judgments are the curses. He's bringing curse against you, and what that means is He's bringing an enemy power to overrun, overpower Jerusalem but you've been preserved, and now I've removed the judgment. Salvation for you has come through judgment, and that's how all of us get salvation. For Israel of old, it came first through the slaughtering of a lamb and wiping the blood on the doorposts. Israel is my firstborn son, and if you do not let my people go, Pharaoh, I'll slaughter your firstborn son. And then you jump to Exodus, that is Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you jump to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, and God specifically says, I will move through the land and I will kill all the firstborn. And Israel will be preserved if they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. So the blood of the lamb represents the firstborn of Israel who were just as wicked as Egypt, and they would die if they didn't sacrifice the Lamb. But the Lamb becomes the substitute for Israel. And then all of the sacrifices, Israel is only saved through judgment. The judgment passes over them. The fires are poured out on the substitute, not on the sinner. And now we're looking at a people who are able to rejoice. But He's writing it not just to the future group, he's write, this is part of the Bible, he's writing it to the present generation who are still awaiting the judgment day. And it's like, rejoice, because the king has already come. Now this word for king, the letters behind the Hebrew are MLK. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5... Molech in the NIV, Milcom in the ESV, you can see Molk, Molk. That's the word for king. So we may have an actual word play going on here. You think you're going to swear by Milcom? He's your king? No. Yahweh is the king. He's the chief supreme power of all things. And the God of Israel is also the God of the world. And He will put down all the enemies. Your enemies are gone. And now right in your midst is the Lord. In your midst. That's the prepositional phrase that's attached to what God's going to do with His Spirit in the New Covenant. I'll put My Spirit in your midst. The presence of God making the people His temple. And now we have a Messiah... Whose very name is Emmanuel, God with us. And you shall never fear again. Never fear evil again. Now I'm going to draw attention to something as we move into the very next verse. Just let me get it up on the screen. Almost there. All right. We move to this next unit. 16-20, through the future realization of Jerusalem's coming satisfaction is now called for. On that day, so this parallels verse 11, on that day, on that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. You know that temporary paralysis that comes when you get freaked out? You're walking through the house and your wife jumps out from around the corner. I don't know if she's ever done that to you. But, oh, what did you do that for? It's like you can't do anything. You're frozen. That's what's at stake there. Let not your hands grow weak. It's that temporary paralysis that comes to the body due to an emotional fear. Don't let yourself get there anymore. The judgment's not falling on you. Fear not. Now, one of the discoveries I made that I hadn't known about when I attacked this book is trying to always build bridges in the New Testament, understand how Jesus is anticipated, even though Zephaniah doesn't talk about Him explicitly, I believe He wants us to see Him there. Well, when we look at John chapter 12, which is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, off the Mount of Olives, down into Jerusalem, and everyone's laying out their coats on the ground, and Jesus is on the donkey, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you go to the ESV and look up John 12, it's going to have a little footnote next to that quotation, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And it's going to send you only to Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. But notice that in the quotation of John, it definitely has, Behold, your king is coming to you. That sounds like Zechariah 9, exactly. But it doesn't start out with rejoice. It starts out with, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Where did that fear not come from? Look here. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice and exult. The King of Israel, namely Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. There's the first fear in this text. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. So when I look at John, not only do we have the parallel of daughter of Zion, daughter of Zion in Zephaniah, we have fear not, Fear not. And then, amazingly, because I really think that in Zephaniah, the king of Israel is referring to Yahweh. Just let your eye turn over to verse 17. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He's the king. He's the savior. But we could just go to any of the prophets and find out that how does God reign he reigns through His earthly king. How does He save? He saves through His earthly king. He is the shepherd, but how does He shepherd? He shepherds through His earthly king. And look what John is doing. He's taking the king of Israel out of Zephaniah and saying, Jesus is it. This is how God reigns. Notice how it's worded. Um, Oh, I, what was, I just saw it this morning. Um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a citation straight out of the Psalms. And it's in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. That's what Jesus does. So here, the King of Israel is Yahweh, but one who comes in His name is representing Him. That's what the King is. And so Zephaniah, I mean, John has no problem, no hesitation, even taking the phrase, King of Israel, that addressed Yahweh, and applying it to the second person of the Trinity. Yahweh includes Jesus. And Jesus comes in the name of Yahweh, standing with all the character, all the authority, all the power, every quality of Yahweh Himself, embodied in Himself. He is the Savior. And not only does John read Zephaniah this way, so what I'm suggesting is that John is not just using Zechariah 9.9, 9, he's also drawing from Zephaniah 3.14-16. through 16. And he's putting these two texts together. He's just blending them together and viewing them as talking about the same reality. Nick?
2: So then can we say Jesus is Yahweh? Is um that
1: a legitimate thing to say. Um Jesus is as we say
0: Jesus
1: is, God. is Jesus right, we do. Um, Jesus is God. But in saying Jesus is God, we're not saying that Jesus is everything about God. So we've got three persons in the Trinity. And yet Jesus is a manifestation, the the earthly manifestation of Yahweh. He is God with us, God incarnate, taken on flesh. And so when we see Jesus, we see a picture of Yahweh in action. He is Yahweh. But the Spirit is Yahweh and the Father is Yahweh as well. All of them make up the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is Yahweh. That's His name, the Causer of all things. And the way He causes all things is, is through each person of the Trinity functioning in His specific role. But, all of, but the texts that are applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, whether it be at the name of Yahweh, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, that's applied to Jesus. God declares, I am and Jesus just over and over again, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the water, I am. He, was, I am. That's right, before Abraham was, I am. He's identifying himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. You, you met him there. One of the things that I didn't draw attention to, throughout the prophets you hear, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. We're going to see it right at the end of this text. Says Yahweh. Last verse is Ephaniah. And when we get to the, to the Gospels, Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Tom?
2: I, I, think, the, it's a, it's a, I think if you asked like one of the apostles and you said that, I think they had a path that they got there, um, exactly what you just quoted in Philippians, where it says, because of what he did in verse 9, therefore God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And people have argued, well, what name is it? But in that text, he's quoting things that use Yahweh, and he's putting Jesus there, and people wonder, well, is it Son? Is that the name above every name? But I I think that's it, is they're saying that God the Father has bestowed on him his name and said, "This this is yours and and so the apostles when they get there if you said well in the old testament is god the father yahweh they'd say yeah and they'd say is christ yahweh and they'd be able to say yeah with no tension because mm-hmm. god is saying, as man as as 100% man 100% god this name
1: it's yours that's it Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. That's just talking about God in general. But then you read Romans 1.16 For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. All things were made through Him and for Him. What's applied to God is applied to Jesus. He is one and the same. And this When I say, not only did John read Zephaniah this way, I'm suggesting that Zephaniah intends it to be read this way, even though he is intentionally not using the language of the Messiah for some reason. But he's living in an age of absolute darkness that is as far away from the hope of the Messiah as is possible. And I think that's part of his sermon power. But he is a preacher after Isaiah, after Ezekiel. After Jeremiah, and or not after Jeremiah, not after Ezekiel, sorry. In time, he's not after them. When you're reading the the Bible in the order that it comes to us, his, his book is found after those books. At the very least, historically, it's found after Isaiah. And you can read what he's saying in light of those books. That's how we're intended to read them. We're supposed to read the Bible as a whole. Not as a bunch of bolts of cloth up on a shelf that you can go in and pick which one you want. I'll do a little bit of uh, Hosea today. A little bit of Zephaniah today. But we're supposed to see it as a quilt that works together and tells the story of, the, of anticipation that lays a foundation of hope for the coming of Christ.
2: And it, and it doesn't,
1: It doesn't, no, it doesn't violate it at all.
2: Zephaniah, Zechariah are able to do that. John recognizes that and it's a smooth flow. That's right.
1: Because I, they, they must, they just deep down have such a conviction that Jesus is God. Therefore, it doesn't break down anything. We continue. One yeah, one just Note
2: In verse 16, he says, On that day... It shall be said to you from eye, "Let your hands not grow weak." And that reminds me of Hebrews twelve, where he says, "Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees." Which is interesting because he's speaking to Hebrews. So here they're looking forward to that day, and in Hebrews he's shaking them, he's saying, "Don't forget about that day.
1: Don't hmm. go back under the law." It's, it's a similar language. Well, oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. As if the writer to the Hebrews is saying, we're already here. This is being realized right now, and you're in a position now where you shouldn't need to fear. Don't let your hands grow weak. That's really helpful, Matt. Thank you. So, we come. I'm just going to look at my notes here to make sure I... Don't jump over anything I wanted to touch on. Okay, 3.17. 3.17. Fear not. Well, why shouldn't they fear? Because the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Absolutely amazing. So, what is God? This God in their midst. He's a mighty one to save them from what? Three things that have been identified already. Look at 3.11. He's going to save them from their sins. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds with which you rebelled against Me. He's going to save them from the rebels. For I will remove from your midst, verse 11, your proudly exultant ones. Or, verse 15, He's cleared away your enemies. And 3.15, He has taken away the judgments against you. God has saved them from the curse. He saved them from their sins, He saved them from rebels, and He saved them from the curse. That's worth rejoicing over. But what's amazing is that this text doesn't... I mean, it, it already said, I can't help but stop and give praise to God. Verses 14 and 15. But now he, he pauses and he says, do you realize the significance of this? Our joy will find consummation in a God who is delighting in us. Who is... He can't hold it in. He has to... Um, um, you tell me this. Have you ever had something you're so excited about you just have to tell somebody. My son Ezra this last summer we got to go uh, fishing and this boy caught fish. He comes in with a three pound bass and about six bluegill and it was July 4th and there was a neighborhood parade at Graham and Grandpa's and we got out just in time. The parade was just kicking off. We came off the dock. He's got a stringer of seven or eight fish, and one of them is a three-pound bass, and he's five years old. And the parade—I mean, it's just a neighborhood parade. There's grand, one of the grandpas is up on his. Um, uh, Lawn tractor, you know, on the back it says, Happy Fourth, and and he's all dressed up with a big hat, and there's all these other people that got all dressed up, and Ezra's just glowing, right? He's got his fish, and he's just got it. What does he do? He hops in the parade, and he walks like two miles around all these blocks, and he's just carrying his stringer. He couldn't leave it to himself. He had to just get it out. That's what we are. Our joy is not consummated until we can tell somebody. Now, look at this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's our God. That he's actually delighting in his people at that level. And he's just got to get it out. Holy Moses, this is awesome. You're with me. It's finally come. The, There is no place in the Bible. Well, Isaiah 65, 18, and 19 is one. Let's let's just go there. You'll see it. It is a text that. Isaiah 65. Now, this this may rock us a little bit. Let's see. This This is great. I love rocking people. Okay. Look at verse 17. What is is Zephaniah talking about, this age? What is this period, okay? For behold, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So we're talking about new creation, right? New heavens and new earth. But be glad and rejoice forever. That sounds like the command in Zephaniah 3, 14. Rejoice! Sing aloud! "...be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in My people. No more shall be heard in it a sound of weeping and a cry of distress." So there you see the balance between our joy and God's joy. But in no other text in all the Bible is it ever mentioned that God sings. Now, Isaiah makes it clear. We're talking about the new heavens and new earth. We're talking about new creation. But oh my, what does Paul say? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 already in Jesus we have secured every spiritual blessing. And that Holy Spirit becomes, verses 13 and 14, the down payment that gives us absolute confidence that the full inheritance that in Tom's text this morning is imperishable, undefiled, and one more, kept in heaven for you, that that's coming. The Holy Spirit, though, is our down payment. That means it's part of what the future is about. And how does Paul talk in 2 Corinthians five seventeen? Who are we? We're a new creation, new heavens and new earth. Yes, we're waiting for them, but already the new heavens and the new earth have come already in us, just in a spiritual sense now. But that's the down payment. It's already inaugurated. It's already started. And what does that mean? God is singing. Over you and over me. He's singing over us. This reminds me of the beautiful text at the end of the Psalms where, uh, let it be, Psalm 147, verse 11: The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. Have you ever thought of that? This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. And now that same pleasure of the Father for His Son is bleeding over for you brothers who are seeking Him and waiting on Him. People need to hear this. There's people that are so broken in your congregations, they just need to hear God say, let me quiet you with My love. I love you right now. Justly. I love you. I love you. I love you. I remember a day when my pastor called all the veterans up front. My dad was among them. He's a Vietnam vet. It was just moving to me. All the veterans were standing up front in our church. And the pastor just said, thank you. Thank you. And then the congregation started saying, thank you, thank you. And, I mean, my dad among them just broke down. To hear it. I love you. I love you. I love you. The husband who says, I don't need to tell my wife. I love her. Nothing's changed. You know? (laughs) I told her when we got married. Nothing's changed. We have a God who says, let me quiet you with my love. I love you. Yes, you were a rebel, but now you're saved. You're cleansed. There's people that are so broken and they feel so dirty because they've been violated by others. They just need to hear, you're forgiven. I love you. God loves you. Just let your heart be quieted. Remove the anxiety. Remove the fear. Remove the tension. You don't have to have it anymore. It's started. New creation has started. Clean slate. You're His. He's singing. Right now, He's singing over you. Shouting words of great joy. He loves you. He loves you. It's beautiful. New creation, that's what we're looking at. Now we come to verse 18. And if you're tracking along, verse 18 sounds really weird. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And if you look at the NIV, they try harder hard as well. Say something different, I'll remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. And you go to any of the translations and every one struggles with this. And that's why the ESV has a footnote and says, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. (laughs) (laughs) So positively, this verse is minor. But if you just take it word for word in the Hebrew, I think this is what we arrive at. And I can make good sense of it. The word that's translated appointed feast, or festival rather, appointed feast or festival in verse 18, all it means, literally, it has a more base meaning. This is an interpretation of how to apply it. But it just means an appointed time or an appointed place. Okay? Okay? So at times it's translated festival. That's what it's talking about. The appointed special time in the calendar of the Jews. But it can also be used as it is in Habakkuk. Uh, Let me find where I want to be. Habakkuk 2 verse 3. Same word. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. The vision of judgment, the vision of destruction, when the curse will finally be come to an end. The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I don't think this is talking in Zephaniah about a festival. It's talking about the appointed time. And what appointed time has God set all throughout this book? The day of the Lord. So let's read how I've got it. What you have in the ESV is mourners can also be the sufferers. But mourning, suffering, same idea. And I think this is the bad group. This is the group that we read about. This is the enemies that are going to be gathered by God. Look with me before I read my translation up at verse 8. For my decision is to gather nations. You see that? That word for gather is exactly the same word that's used in verse 18. And in verse 8, the gathering of the nations is for judgment. So, I translate it this way. Those suffering from the appointed time of decision, the appointed time of judgment, whom I gathered from you. There's the remnant. And then we're told in verse 11, He's going to remove, when He gathers, He's going to remove all of the goats. He's going to remove all the rebel. And they're mourning, believe me, under the wrath of God, as the fires Come to consume them. Those suffering from the appointed time of my judgment, whom I gathered from you, were an offering. So there's the word for in verse 18 um, will no longer suffer. Uh, tell you what, the ESV didn't translate this word. NIV, I can find it which is a burden and a reproach to you. So, no longer suffer reproach. The ESV has put this burden word right into that reproach word. But in the NIV, a burden. Think of something that is carried. And very often it's used as a present to a king or an offering. So I think this is actually an echo of the sacrifice that we read about in chapter 1 verse 7. Remember how God has a sacrifice ready to burn. And that's His judgment. And what it is, is that the rebels are the offering on the altar. They're the ones who will be burned. And while they were in Jerusalem, they were a reproach to her, named Jerusalem. So the you, this is just word for word out of the Hebrew, whom I gathered from you is the remnant of Judah. They're the daughter of Jerusalem. And then from them is pulled the reproach that was on Jerusalem. So that's how I word it. Those suffering from the appointed time whom I gathered from you were an offering on her. On Jerusalem, they were a reproach. But now they're gone. They've been burned up. The sinner became the sacrifice. But those who are left are trusting in the substitute. They've drawn near to God. Verse 19, Behold, at that time, at the day when I pull all the rebels away, at the day when I bring my judgment on the enemy, on that day I will deal with all your oppressors, and I'll save the lame and gather the outcast and change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Now, a few things. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison? One of the things that Isaiah 61 declared about the servant, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has appointed me to bring good news to the poor, to declare liberty to the captives. And John the Baptist says... Okay, I'm in prison. Are you the one or not? Because I thought you were, but I'm still here. And you're supposed to be proclaiming liberty. What does Jesus say? Let's look up Matthew 11, verse 5. Here's Jesus' response that proves He indeed is the Messiah. He's the hoped-for one. Matthew 11, verse 5. Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John what you hear, but not only what you hear, what you see. What, what kinds of things did they see? The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. This is something specifically through the prophets, the walking of the lame that was bound up in the hope of the Messiah. No one else could ever do this. And now Zephaniah is saying, this age that I'm talking about is the age when the lame walk. And Jesus tells John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are, are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And then he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What does that mean? I think what it means is that this is happening which shows that it's starting. The kingdom of God is among you. But know this, it's only starting. It's not everyone in the world, every lame person who's walking, every blind person who is seeing. And yes, you're still in prison. But take heart. The kingdom is starting. Don't be offended. If you're offended, you won't be among the redeemed. So stick it out. Just like Zephaniah was calling for. John, seek the Lord and wait on the Lord. But know this, it started I think we're talking about the age of the Messiah. Zephaniah is pointing there. Now we come to this statement. And both the NIV and the ESV word it in a certain way. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Now, the ESV is a little bit questionable whether the praise and renown is something that the people will receive or that God is receiving. The NIV made their choice very clear. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame, gather the exiles. I'll give them praise and honor. Now, we know that God, at the end of the age, over and over again throughout the Bible, will exalt His own in the midst of the world. He'll lift them up. But the closest parallels to this text suggest to me we're not talking about praise that God's going to give people. We're talking, or that others will give people. But rather, what it says very specifically is I will change their shame for praise, for honor. And the question is, whose praise and whose honor? So just turn with me over to Jeremiah 13, 11. These are the cl- two closest parallels to our passage in the Old Testament. And I think it will make clear what we're talking about. Jeremiah 13, verse 11. As the loincloth clings to the waist of a man... So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Who gets the name? Who gets the fame? Who gets the glory? God. The people would be for me. Sorry, so that they would be a people for me, a praise for me. A glory for me. Next text, even clearer. Jeremiah 33, verse 9. Verse 8, I will cleanse them, Jeremiah 33, verse 8, I'll cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Sounds like the same type of place we are in Zephaniah. And then he says in verse 9, "...and this city, Jerusalem, shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them." This is about God's name. About God's fame. So that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that I will put my spirit on you so that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What God's going to do in saving a people for himself is about his name and his fame. So think about Ezekiel chapter 36. Judah, you profaned my name in the land and then you profaned my name among the nations where. To whom I kicked you out. Because they were saying, wait, you're the people of God? You're the people of Yahweh and yet you're in exile? That must mean God is small or unwilling to help you. And God's name was diminished in the eyes of the nations. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. In Ezekiel, He calls it the everlasting covenant. What's it going to look like? It's not going to be for your sake. Not because of anything you've done that I'm going to bring about this covenant, but for the sake of my name. And then he says, I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. Very explicitly, Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my name which you have profaned among the nations to which you went. I will vindicate my name before their eyes when I do a work in you. God's going to do something in His people, transforming them, and it's going to make His name look great again. And I think that's what Zephaniah is getting at. I think Zephaniah is seeing when the shame gets changed, God's going to be magnified. God's name is going to be made much of. And that's the ultimate end of this book, the magnification of God. And the glory of God then becomes our greatest joy. Our experience of joy is not absent from God's glory. Indeed, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And in this moment of consummation, our hearts will be free of fear, filled with joy, and God will be singing over us. And as we are filled with joy, and He's singing over us, He will be magnified as greatest of worth, and he'll be looking down at us, his great treasure, his kingdom name reclamation project, and he'll be delighting in it. And he'll be getting the glory because he's the one who's done it from start to finish. Now, what is kind of on person impersonal in verse 19? I'll change their shame and their, their shame into praise becomes personal in verse 20. At that time I will bring you in, I will bring you. So in verse 19, it's there, but now he just makes it personal. This is how he ends the book. At that time I will bring you in, at that time I will gather you together, for I will make you for a name. I'll gather you together because I'm going to make you for a name and for praise. And again, I think it's not dealing with what he's going to do to the people as if they're going to be exalted and all the world's going to be saying, wow, that remnant is really cool. But rather, I'm going to shape you in such a way that before the eyes of the world, my fame and my name and my renown will be exalted over all, among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. You're going to see it. You're going to taste it. You're going to experience it. The mighty one who will save. And in saving, satisfying. The summons to satisfaction, out of darkness, into light. And today, the call, a patient pursuit of God. A tireless trust in God. Seek the Lord, wait upon the Lord. And in the process of desiring what He's motivating us to do this with, We can find delight in the present. Desire is future-oriented. We want more of what we're already tasting today. And what we hope for tomorrow can change who we are today. Let your satisfaction in God today push you away from sin in the present. Even as you hope in His promises, trust in His promises for a better tomorrow. That's what this is portraying. It's portraying this glorious vision of the future and Sin makes promises. God makes promises. Which do you want more? Which will give more lasting satisfaction? Where do you want your gain to be? Temporary and fleeting or eternal? That's the message of this book. And I think it's so worth preaching it to our people. Because people need to be reminded of what's there. What's already been won. And what is happening right now. Already in the victory that Jesus has wrought. God is singing over us. The same pleasure that He set out of heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's looking at you, Bob, and He's saying, I'm pleased with you. I love you. Quiet your heart with my love. Don't fear. Don't fear death. Don't fear lack of provision. I am yours and you are mine. And then He's turning it into an ode of joy. He's just letting it bellow from the soul. Singing already. There's a book out there by Sam Storms called The Singing God. Oh, it's worth reading. It's celebrating this text and what it would mean for believers if we understood God's delight in His own. The culmination of our joy in God is God's joy in us. God is most satisfied in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He is most glorified, shown, and displayed great when our hearts' desires are cherishing and relishing all that He has secured for us already in the person of His Son. Let's pray. And then we can have questions if you want. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you let us get all the way through these 53 verses. Thank you that you didn't leave this book in darkness. Thank you for the light of dawn and the hope of noon. Thank you for the King of Israel, now manifest in the person of your Son, the Mighty One who saves, who saves us from our sin, who saves us from curse, who saves us from our enemies, making a way that we need not fear. Thank you for that great day so long ago when you rode into Jerusalem only to bear a cross and then to rise from the dead. Thank you that victory has been won, that new creation has been inaugurated, that your spirit is with us, and that with that, a down payment, that full consummate joy in your presence for those who seek you and for those who wait upon you is coming. Keep us from stumbling. Help us persevere. You, the God who has promised to make an everlasting covenant with us that you will not turn from doing good to us, Put the fear of you in our hearts, so that we will not turn from you. We're asking for these blood-bought promises to be yes in Jesus for us. Thank you that you are singing over us now. Amen. Amen. Jason,
2: thirty seconds in verse twelve, he, talks, he uses the word refuge. And you mentioned that, and that's a word we do see a lot. Just real briefly, when you see the cities of refuge in like Numbers 34 or 35, is that really a, a picture pointing to the refuge we have in Christ? Is that what you would see there? Hmm. Is that the big
1: picture? So the cities of refuge, is that a picture of Christ's refuge for us? Um, so many times questions come up that I, in my quest to be Christ-centered, I haven't arrived there yet. Um, My initial response would be, even though I've never thought of that, um, would be that every refuge and protection from judgment that is given to those who, for example, uh, are building a wall and accidentally drop a brick down and it hits their tender on the head and he dies. If he doesn't make his way to the city of refuge he too will die justly at the hands of the family. But if he makes his way to the city of refuge, he's protected. And then his sins can be atoned for in that context. Um, Accidental death, still needing atonement. Um, It would seem to me that every instance of provision and protection is an anticipation of the ultimate provision and protection secured for us by God. So I, would, I wouldn't hesitate building that bridge. All right. We're all done, brothers. Tom, do you have anything final you want to share?
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi meyer Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.